Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your good and true word, the gospel that reveals our Lord Jesus to us. Uh, We do pray that we would see Jesus in his word. We would meet him here and that as we listen to him, uh, we would be equipped to live as his followers. Uh, Give us understanding and trust and help us to conform our thinking and our lives to the word of our Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Jesus always intended uh, to save... It takes two. Jesus always intended to save a people as the fulfilment of God's purpose. The purpose of God to have a people for his own, which he declared in his promises to Abraham and repeated throughout the Old Testament. And there are a sample of references in the outline. Upon Peter's confession that he was the Lord and Christ, Jesus said, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus will have a people, bring a people into being by his saving work who will be distinguished by sharing Peter's confession of Jesus now crucified and risen as Christ and Son of God, Lord. A people who are not an abstract idea, a concept, but who, as we'll learn in chapter 18 of Matthew, are to find concrete expression in the world by living in self-consciously distinct communities of Jesus' followers, communities that conform their life to Jesus' word, the saving word through which he gathers them around himself just as God gathered redeemed Israel at Sinai. As a people, as we'll see today, of extraordinary privilege and with real responsibilities for their own perseverance, and the perseverance of their brothers and sisters until we all come to the fullness of the salvation Jesus brings, the reign of God in the new heaven and earth, where there'll be no sin, no evil, no suffering, no death. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be thinking about the people of God, as revealed in Matthew chapters 18 to 20, asking questions like, who belongs to the community of God's King Jesus? What should characterise them? What is their life together to be like? And it's a good time to be asking these questions. We have just been through a time that has isolated us physically from each other and disrupted the rhythm of our common life. And we're still feeling it, even though many of us have worked hard and well through this time to maintain connection with each other to keep loving in deed and not just in words. And we live in an individualistic culture where we're encouraged to pursue the interests of me and mine without too much engagement with the needs of others. That can be left to government or those who are paid to care. A culture where it's all too easy to live self-contained and self-sufficient lives, mixing only with the select few we choose. And that can overflow into our Christian life and lead us to downplay, to minimise the importance of our life together and the responsibility Jesus gives to each of us for the welfare of other believers. Where we can think, as long as my personal relationship with Jesus is okay or my family life is okay, I'm right, free to just get on pursuing my own goals and plans. And others 
Oh, they can be left to the professionals who are paid to care. Where we can almost believe, despite the, all the evidence of Scripture and the urgings of God's Spirit, that we can live a Christian life on our own, not needing or caring for others. But our life together as Jesus' church is important. It is the visible, tangible expression of God's saving purpose in the world, of his calling people to himself through the gospel. It is where Christian truth is to be found, defended and passed on the church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Our life together is the place where trusting obedience to Jesus' word is modelled to the world. All the New Testament letters, bar Philemon, including the pastorals, are written to churches, to congregations of God's people. And the obedience looked for is not just individual but communal, the common faith producing a common life. And the Lord Jesus, as part of the privilege of being his people, calls us to share in his love for his people, gives us the responsibility of caring for each other as the Father and the Son care for their people. So giving thanks to God for his word, light in our darkness, the word that equips us to trust the Lord Jesus and do the good he has called us to, let's look now at the privilege and responsibility of being Jesus' people. And if you're not yet one of Jesus' people, I hope you'll see in both our privileges and responsibilities how good it is to belong to Jesus. Uh, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. The temple tax was a theoretically voluntary levy paid annually by adult male Jews for the upkeep of the temple and some groups didn't pay it uh, and so the collectors asked Peter a genuine question. But Jesus takes the initiative, verse 25, speaking before Peter can say anything, to use this tax and Peter's answer to teach Peter that he, Jesus, really is the one Peter has just confessed him to be, the Son of God, and also to teach Peter that Jesus' followers are also sons of God in the family of the great king. Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariff or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free. The temple for which the tax was being collected was symbolically the house of God, the throne of God, the sign of that the Lord reigned as king amongst his people. So the tax was being levied, as it were, on God's behalf for the upkeep of God's house. But kings in those days didn't collect taxes from their children. To be the family of the king was to be tax exempt. You see, Jesus is getting Peter to think about the reality of his confession of Jesus as the son of God. As the true son, he doesn't need to pay the tax. But more, Jesus is also saying his followers don't need to pay the tax as well. You see that, verse 27, so that we won't give offence. Jesus includes Peter. So why is Peter also exempt? Well, it's because Jesus' people are also in the family, God's children, sons of the great king. 
Our father, remember, he has already taught his followers to pray. And in 1814, at the end of this passage that we're looking at, you heard Jesus speak of God to his disciples as your father. Later, after the resurrection, Jesus will refer to his followers as his brothers. Jesus' people, believers in Jesus, you and I, if we are his followers, are children of God. And the gospel's actually clear on that, isn't it? John 1, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, those who believe in his name. Now, Jesus doesn't expand on the extraordinary privilege of being God's children here, but it's great, isn't it? We are loved by the eternal, almighty God, so loved with a love that will never fail us. Oh, we have access to God. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, writes Paul. And so we don't need temple or priest. We can come directly to God. And being given the spirit of God's son, we come to share in the life of God, eternal life. To be God's child through faith in Jesus is to be richly privileged. And believer, sitting here this morning, so ordinary, is that how you know yourself? Richly privileged by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus. The great privilege of being included in the family of the great King of God. Now, as I've said, that privilege is not expanded on here, but what we do see here is the character of God's true children in the character of the Son, the Lord Jesus. He knows he doesn't need to pay the tax, but he says, verse 27, so that we won't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook and take the fish, first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin, take it and give it to them for me and for you. What do we see here? Jesus humbling himself. He humbles himself to pay a cost he doesn't need to pay so that by accommodating himself to the expectation of the collectors, it's made easier, not harder, for them to listen to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. Now that humbling to seek the good of others seems easy here, doesn't it? Catch a fish with a coin. But it will take Jesus to the cross. It'll cost him all to achieve good for us, the great good of being forgiven and included in God's family. The family whose members are to share in the humility that can seek the good of others. Remember 1 Corinthians 11. Paul holds up Jesus as the example. Follow my example, he says, as I follow the example of Christ. Now humility, humility is necessary for belonging to the family of God. And that's what our Lord emphasises in the next part of the gospel. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You can actually understand how that question could arise here, can't you? I mean, kingdoms then and now have hierarchies, some with more power and honour, some with less. And Peter's really been quite prominent lately, hasn't he? Been blessed for his confession of Jesus gone with Jesus up the mountain, now included along with Jesus as a son of God in payment of the tax. 
And Jesus has spoken of his own death. And so you can understand the other disciples wondering if Peter's going to be top dog when Jesus departs. Who's the greatest? But before we look at Jesus' answer, let's ask, how do we measure greatness, importance? Achievement, military or civil, buildings built, battles won, education, wealth, connections, positions held, recognition of peers, all those ways. But now look at what Jesus says. He called a small child and had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In response, Jesus gives them an object lesson in humility. And the child he stood amongst them wasn't going to be a wealthy or privileged child. They didn't hang around with Jesus, just a curious peasant child. And such children were at the bottom of the social pile. They were powerless, without status, subject to and dependent on their parents. In a time as this was of high infant mortality, even their hold on life, their place in life, was insecure. You couldn't build any kind of hopes on them and you didn't consult them when you were making your plans. So did they have any of the marks of greatness? None, in, none at all. In fact, they are the very opposite of greatness, as far from being thought important as you could get. And that's the point. Jesus is saying that your starting point, our starting point for entering the kingdom, for belonging, is turning and becoming like this child, reckoning yourself to have no greatness, no importance. Turning is a word that is actually used for repentance, changing your mind about something. So Jesus says the disciples have to turn from their preoccupation with greatness, from being concerned with their status and importance relative to each other. They have to abandon that as wrong-headed and embrace having no status, no claim on greatness as those who depend entirely on Jesus for being in the kingdom. In a sense, Jesus is repeating what he's taught already on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom's for the spiritually bankrupt, those who know they have nothing to offer. So no one who thinks they're great, deserving of position and prominence, who thinks they can bring to the king of the kingdom some service he needs and should recognise and reward. No one like that has any place in God's kingdom. You actually get in by abandoning the notion of greatness, of your importance. And belonging is entirely by Jesus' gift, his grace to the undeserving. And we are all equal in our undeserving. Having laid that foundation in verse 3 about belonging to the kingdom, Jesus now answers the question about who's the greatest. Therefore, he says, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You may not have recognised that, but that really is a bit of a slap down. Jesus is saying, Two things that tell us anyone concerned for greatness in the kingdom is on entirely the wrong track. 
Firstly, he says, anyone who's abandoned any ideas of greatness, any thought of deserving more honour than others, who's humbled himself to be like this child without status or importance, can be great in the kingdom. And secondly, when you put verses 3 and 4 together, that actually has to be everyone who is in the kingdom. For all who are in the kingdom have turned and become like children. That's the beginning, how you start. And so you can't even compete in humility to show how great you are. The greatness of the kingdom is for every believer. For every believer has to abandon a preoccupation with their own importance. Now we hear that, but let's think, how are you going in the pride and status stakes? Uh, We can hear Jesus, but still think like the world, (laughs) concerned with our greatness. Here are some tests. Are you easily wounded when your contribu- if you or your contribution is not recognised? Have you started to think that some service is beneath you, perhaps only for beginning, less mature Christians? Or do you think your concerns should have precedence in conversation or consideration above others? And here's a more general one. This is a test of whether you think like the world. Do you think the salvation of a sports star is more significant than that of a child in kids' club? Yeah, all those can reveal the world in our hearts. But not embracing the humility Jesus calls for, thinking you're a greater, puts you in real danger as a follower of Jesus. Danger is actually spoken of in this chapter of despising others or later next week not heeding rebuke by your brothers and sisters because you see where we're concerned with status, low status persons are reluctant to rebuke high status persons and high status persons can be reluctant to hear. Oh, and where you're concerned for status, you're left vulnerable to bitterness of what you think is the inadequate respect shown to you by others. But heeding Jesus' call to turn and become like a little child is actually freeing. It frees you to acknowledge reality, that you have nothing to offer God. frees you to depend entirely on his grace and kindness, which is our only security. And yes, it frees you to listen to others who speak the truth in love to you, and, of course, to serve them by speaking loving truth to them in turn. And that speaking the truth, as we'll see next week, can be life-saving. But just because believers have abandoned ideas of greatness doesn't mean that they're not valuable. In fact, every believer, because of their relationship to Jesus, has to be reckoned, says Jesus, of infinite value, infinite worth. Whoever, he says, welcomes one such child in my name, welcomes me. In in my name means because of their relationship with me, their association with me. And Jesus is talking of his disciples, those who have turned and humbled themselves to become like little children to follow him. Welcoming them, says Jesus, is welcoming the Son of God, the Son of the great King. Here are the disciples. They're asking about who's the greatest. 
And now, they are told, they have to treat every disciple as if they are the greatest, for Jesus is the greatest. So again, think, have you been consciously welcoming other believers as if you are welcoming the Lord Jesus? If you believe Jesus' word here and in Matthew 10 and Matthew 25, the way you treat other disciples is the way Jesus reckons you treat him. So ask yourself, when you're relating to your brothers and sisters, even the least, do you think they feel that they have been treated as someone important? After they've talked to you, do you think they feel as if they've been treated as someone important, that you've given them time, shown them courtesy, listened to them. You do that for important people, those you value, don't you? In fact, you'd even rearrange your time to meet them and you'd make provision for their comfort, not be like the believers in James 2 who made the poor sit at their feet. Now, I find this teaching very challenging. It's hard, I don't know how you find it, I find it hard not to be impatient when I'm busy or tired. Hard not to be dismissive of what I might think are trivial concerns. Oh and yeah, sometimes hard not to be selective in who you give your time to, driven by the perception of who will be more useful to your own plans. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. We need grace, don't we, to love and welcome Jesus' people, every one of them, as Jesus. And yes, we need to show grace to each other where our welcome is less than perfect. Jesus' humble people matter. And Jesus and the Father who sent Jesus into the world to save his helpless and undeserving people want them to come to their goal, to come to enjoy living under Jesus' rule in the new heaven and earth. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to fall away, it would be better for them if a heavy millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world! Because of offences, for offences, causes of stumbling will inevitably come. But woe to that person by whom these offences come. Because Jesus' people matter. Jesus warns all who want to cause them to fall away or, as the NIV has, to stumble. He warns them. Now, stumbling is, is more vivid, isn't it? Jesus has called his people to follow him, to walk in the way directed by him as he brings us to his goal for us. To cause someone to stumble is to hinder them in their following of Jesus, to trip them up so that they're in danger of falling out of the race, out of the way. And as you've heard, it's a serious warning. Better you are drowned before you cause someone to stumble. And Jesus says such causes of stumbling will come from the world because they don't recognise Jesus' followers as God's children. As 1 John says, they don't recognise God. They don't know him. It's the world's nature, verse 7. It's the world's nature, the way it is, to hinder our following of Jesus. We should expect that because the world opposes the rule of the Lord Jesus and so it will always be the source of temptations, persecutions and cares 
And Jesus says God will judge the world for that. But Jesus' warning is general. Whoever, he wants us to hear it because sadly it is possible for believers to create stumbling blocks for other believers. And again, some are mentioned in this chapter, treating other believers with contempt or being unforgiving. But there are other causes, being indifferent to your brothers and sisters, hypocrisy, harbouring false teaching, they're all causes of stumbling. Or ourselves indulging in sinful behaviours that get in the way of our own following of Jesus and tempt others to do the same. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hellfire. Reaching our goal must matter to us believers matter more than anything. Now, Jesus' language was shocking in the first century. Self-mutilation was abhorrent to Jews, and it's shocking now. But the Lord Jesus is using very forceful language to make his point. Now, we mustn't misread his language. And so, first of all, we mustn't think that physical amputation will stop us sinning. I mean, Jesus used the same language in Matthew 5. Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. But we all know, and Jesus knew, that taking out an eye won't stop lust in the heart. I mean, Jesus has already taught that our sins originate in our hearts and chopping off limbs doesn't change our hearts. And secondly, so that's the first error, we mustn't think that physical amputation will stop us sinning. And secondly, of course, we mustn't think that amputees will be disadvantaged in heaven. But if they're the wrong understandings, what's the right one? What's the point Jesus is forcibly making? Well, it's this, missing out on the kingdom because some sin is stopping you from following Jesus is worse than you can possibly imagine. Our Lord talks of being thrown into the hell of fire, the eternal fire. So Jesus is saying, don't let anything stop you from following me. It doesn't matter how precious whatever it is is, and that's why eyes and hands and feet are mentioned. They are precious. It doesn't matter, says Jesus, how precious, how dear that sin is to you or that relationship or that love of the praise of others or your reputation. If it gets in the way of your following Jesus, it has to go, for coming to the kingdom has to matter more. There is, remember, such a great gulf between the two alternative destinations that await us, between eternal punishment and eternal life. Such a great gulf that you have to make a complete break with whatever it is that hinders you, trips you up from coming to eternal life.
You see, Jesus says his people are serious about living his way, serious about holiness. They're not to tolerate sin in themselves. And as we'll see next week, they're not to tolerate sin, open, persistent disobedience to Jesus in their assembly. Now, that seriousness is unfashionable. In fact, being serious is just unfashionable in our culture. But following Jesus is not a hobby or an interest. It's the only way to eternal life in a world of death. And knowing how much Jesus' followers matter to our God, how he cares for them, that they are his loved family and that he'll punish the world for causing them to stumble. And knowing what's at stake, eternal life, the perseverance of our brothers and sisters, these little ones, Jesus' followers, has to matter to each one of us. You see, it's not enough not to cause them to stumble. Believers, says Jesus, must actively seek to keep each other walking in Jesus' way. See to it, he says, <coughs> that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Now, where you're interested in greatness, despising others is a real danger. You'll only want to mix with those who increase your status and reputation and so you'll dismiss, reckon of not worthy of your interest. You'll want to have nothing to do with those who are lowest in the hierarchy, who can't enhance your greatness by associating with you, who can't further your plans. You'll just deem them of no use, no interest. But despising Jesus' little ones would be a mistake and show how out of touch with reality you are in your valuation of others. I tell you, says Jesus, in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. Now, as you probably know and can imagine, talk of angels generated lots of speculation here, you know, from guardian angels to, you know, their spirits after death. Now, when you come to a verse like this, sometimes it's actually good to admit that you don't know everything. And in fact, there's lots we don't know because we haven't been told, and that includes about angels. But we can admit we don't know everything about these angels and still take the obvious point that in saying that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven, Jesus is saying <coughs> those who have the interests of these little ones, his disciples, as their main concern, are close to God. You see, it's a picture from the royal court. Those who behold the face of the king are in the first rank of courtiers, sitting around him. They're the ones who have easiest access to him, who can best bring their concerns to him. And so the people that you and I might be at risk of despising are actually those whose interests are nearest and dearest to God, the eternal king, people who will never be without advocates and help in the very presence of God. That should make you think, shouldn't you? We should value our fellow believers, every one of them, especially the humblest, rightly. Value them as God does, dear to him. And if we did, 
We'd never be content to see any one of them stray from the Lord Jesus because God is not content to let that happen. Never content to shrug our shoulders and say, as we sometimes can, oh, it's only uh, he, she, never contributed much, oh, always a bit flaky, always work, never with the program, what can you do? Ever said anything like that in your heart? What do you think, says our Lord? Someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray. Won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. Now, shepherds were a common part of the life of Galilean peasants, so it's no surprise that Jesus can apply their habits and practices to two things close to God's heart, seeking the lost in Luke 15 and bringing back the straying. And Jesus makes the application very clear for us, doesn't he? In the same way, it's not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, in context, Jesus is setting the scene for the way we interact with our brothers and sisters when they sin, which we'll look at next week. Jesus doesn't want them lost. He wants them brought back to following him. But it should this care should characterise all our engagement with our brothers and sisters. They matter to God. He wants every one of us safe and secure within his flock. Rather than despise any, we should be actively seeking to promote the health and safety of all believers. And when we see one straying, we should actively seek to bring them back, not just pastors and elders. It should be the concern of all of us. If we are children of our Father, and that is our great privilege and security as believers in Jesus, then those who matter to him should matter to us and it'll cost us because the picture of a shepherd seeking his sheep is a picture of effort so you notice say someone stopped coming to growth group or you've not seen them at church or you might know that they've stopped reading their bible going through a really dry patch they start to go out with that non-christian friend or friends or maybe you've heard that they're drinking more heavily or they've just started to go cold on the whole Christian thing or, or have a hurt that is festering into bitterness. You hear that? What do you do? Well, you make the phone call. You invite for coffee. Go round and drop in. Have the awkward conversation and pray. Knowing what is at stake, we'd want someone to do that for us, wouldn't we? Eternal life worth an awkward conversation. To seek the strain is the responsibility of all of us. And if we lead it, leave it just to pastors and elders or growth group leaders, we will fail. We won't be the people Jesus wants us to be. Because let's face it, it's one thing to search for one. It's an entirely another thing to try to be chasing 20. This is the responsibility of each of us. The privileges of Jesus' people, they're great, aren't they? To be sons of the great King who call God Father, to be the little ones 
who matter to God, to whom he intends to give the kingdom, whose angels always behold the face of our Father, to be gathered by Jesus into his church. Do you know that privilege, your privilege if you're a believer, unearned, a gift to the undeserving who have nothing to offer, no greatness of their own, a gift of God of his grace given freely through the death of his son. Do you know those privileges as you sit here? Does it make your heart sing to belong to Jesus' people? It should make your heart sing every day to say to God, our Father, and to know your part of his family where Jesus is your brother. But with that privilege comes our responsibilities, responsibilities given to us by our Lord for our good, to embrace the humility of sons who can put the interests of others before their own, (coughs) to welcome every believer as if you are welcoming the Lord Jesus, to be serious about persevering, about getting everything that hinders your following of Jesus out of your life and to do nothing that would hinder others from following Jesus, to be like your father and not be content to see any stray, to want to keep every follower of Jesus safe and secure in the company of Jesus' people. Privileges and responsibilities. Jesus has saved a people. Believe it or not, we are his gift to each other, where each of us listens to Jesus and does what he says, given to each other to keep each of us persevering to eternal life. And as every one of us is prone to forget, to be enticed by fleeting sin, to wander off, we need each other. So, Knowing each believer matters to God, knowing the kingdom is ours as we trust the Lord Jesus, let's love each other (coughs) enough to participate fully in our common life and in our participation seek the good of others by being humble, godly and persevering in the love that welcomes all, welcomes all as we would welcome our glorious and loving Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. We pray you would grant us humility, the humility that can seek the good of others. We pray that we would delight to love Jesus' people, knowing how much he has loved us. Our Father, we pray that we would not just be hearers but doers, so that the Lord Jesus is glorified in having a people who are truly his own in this world, truly his own because they trust him and they do what he says. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.